Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 24. With World Environment Day on Sunday the 5th of June, the focus of this week's episode is on the power of the collective wisdom of Indigenous cultures, communities and focus groups to make positive change. My guest this week is Richard Robbins from Project Island Song, a charitable organisation that uses this unified approach. Richard explains what it takes to manage the mammoth task of restoring a natural ecosystem and reintroducing wildlife an intricate balancing act between supportive intervention while not interfering in the natural process of growth and development of all the living organisms. The synchronicity of events and information I've come across in the past week has really got my happy juices flowing. I was in awe of the passion and wisdom from people in my own community who attended a workshop held by last week's guest, Tanya McInnes. The ideas and solutions to rebalance our backyard were phenomenal, reaffirming the value of a diverse community and the power of the collective. Then just this morning I discovered businesses and politicians from around the world have been in Switzerland for the past week for the World Economic Forum annual meeting where the leaders pledge for nature made two years ago to reverse biodiversity loss by 2030 was a key issue. And within that document, it stipulates a commitment to the full and effective participation of Indigenous peoples and local communities in decision-making and recognition of their rights. For me, it's an affirmation of what planetary consciousness educator Matthias De Stefano says. Our journey is about remembering we are one big global family. We've forgotten the value of diverse cultures, that every living organism is important. It's time to shift from fighting to prove our difference is the right one to honouring those differences, which is the core message of a film being released this coming week called Mission, Joy to Finding Happiness in Troubled Times, that's been three years in the making. It stars two of the most revered global icons, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, who share ancient wisdom, neuroscience and mischief on their mission to bring joy. It'll be available to view for free for 48 hours on June the 3rd, 12pm UTC time, and that's midnight here in New Zealand. The link is in the show notes. There's much joy among the people of the Tikotihianga e Mahikaha Trust in Kaikoui, who are recognised as the supreme winners of the Northland Regional Council's Environmental Awards. They were honoured for the innovative way they inspired and shared the indigenous wisdom of the Māori culture alongside conventional knowledge to restore their local environment and in so doing provided opportunities for the betterment of their youth, culture and economy. On a less joyful note, 
40 blue penguins were found dead on Tokoro Beach at Doubtless Bay in the far north, something that used to happen only once a decade but is now becoming more frequent because of the warmer sea temperatures which affects their food supply, the result of which means they die of starvation and hypothermia. Then there's the 47-foot sperm whale that beached on the Florida Keys, found with a stomach full of intertwined fishing lines and plastic bags. Please, wherever you live, especially if you're close to water, pick up any rubbish you see so it doesn't end up clogging our oceans and choking our marine life. But there are the lucky ones, like the 15-foot humpback whale in Mallorca that sailors saw floating with exhaustion, wrapped in fishing net and infested with parasites. It had obviously been there a while. They put out an SOS call to nearby diving centres who spent close to an hour cutting away the net and then able to set the whale free. I'm confounded by the contrast of attitudes. On the one hand, you have people going out of their way to care for the environment and its wildlife, while others, like Oceana Gold Mining Company, who think nothing of blasting it to smithereens, destroying the native vegetation and homes of vulnerable wildlife. And, it seems, all without batting an eye, as they're actually mining on conservation land in the Coromandel. Why the chuff are they allowed to be there in the first place, never mind consideration being given to allow them to expand their operations? It's absolute bonkers. Fortunately, there are organisations who have foresight and put protocols in place to stop any kind of destruction way ahead of time, like the Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty that came into effect in 1991. While open-ended, the protocol may be dangerously challenged when the treaty becomes modifiable after 2041 because areas for extraction are running out and the continent of Antarctica is rich in minerals. It's imperative we stay ahead of the game and adopt the same foresight so the continent is an absolute no-go option forever. You can show your support by signing the petition to protect the future of the continent. The link is in the show notes. It proves the legal protocols do protect the plundering of the environment because only a quarter of the 30% of places that do have indigenous peoples and local communities as guardians, the need for us all to come together is all the more imperative. Project Island Song is an organisation here in New Zealand who have the support of the indigenous Tirawiti Hapu, the Bay of Islands Community Group and the Department of Conservation as partners to protect the islands of the Eastern Bay of Islands known as Ipipiri. I talked to Richard Robbins about the complex nature of the work involved and what it takes to realise the long-term vision of a safe, self-sustaining environment filled with tweets, twitters, trills and whistles of our native birds. Welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to find out a, a lot more about Project Island Song because I believe it's been going for like 19 years and I'm intrigued to find out as to who started it and why it was started in the first place. Well, kia ora. Well, thank you for having me on. That's, it's a real pleasure to be here. The concept did start quite a while ago and it was really a couple of members of the local community who knew the islands of Epiphany and knew that the islands were infested with pests, pest mammals, but they also knew that there was an opportunity. And back in the day, they, uh, my understanding, I, I hadn't started at this point, my understanding, they went to uh, the Department of Conservation and said that they wanted to try and see if the islands could be made pest-free. And initially, it wasn't being perceived as it was going to be possible. 
Um, it was too complex. The islands are very close to the mainland and are visited by a lot of people. So the risk of uh, re-incursion by pest mammals was very high. And they didn't get an overly positive response initially. Um, so the community actually then took it to Hapu at Rafadi, Ngāti Kuta and Patukeha, and as uh, Manufenua for the islands. And they took it to them and said that they felt it was an opportunity to make this work. And my understanding was then that the, the Hapu went to the, the department as Crown Partners and said, we want this to happen. Wow. Perseverance pays, doesn't it? It does. And then there were several years of preparation and the islands were made pest-free in 2009. Wow, that's phenomenal. So uh, how long have you actually been involved? I started in, um, it's just over 10 years. So um, March 2012 was when I started. Congratulations. And what's your role? So I'm now general manager um, right. and my, my role is fairly broad. It's, I suppose, some of the strategy working on um, programs and projects. Uh, my core is, is around uh, the species reintroductions to the islands, bringing back the rare and endangered species to the island. But obviously a big component is also supporting volunteers, fundraising. We're an NGO, non-government organisation, so we have to raise the funds to make it work. Right. Um, so that's a big part of the role. Awesome. So what's your background? Where did your inspiration come from and your expertise? That's a very good question. You may have, you can probably tell I'm not from New Zealand originally. <laughs> I came on my, my OE in 1997 and I was just blown away by New Zealand's ecology when I got here. I just remember kind of being here and thinking, you know, 75% of what I'm looking at, the species here, are not found anywhere else on the planet. And growing up in the UK, I grew up on a farm in the Midlands in Warwickshire. Birds have always been part of my life. Young ornithologist, you know, doing all sorts of those things. But in the UK, I knew that we only had one vertebrate species in the whole of the United Kingdom that was endemic or is endemic. And what's that? Crossbill finch up in Scotland. Oh, come here to New Zealand and you just see how special and it just plays by different rules here um, and it blew me away just kind of experiencing and seeing but also seeing all the problems here as well so that's what was, that, I suppose that was part of my inspiration of getting involved. Yeah, I came from England as well but in the south um, nearly 20 years ago and I just kind of stepped off the plane and it felt like home and was blown away by nature itself not having any special but my my interest is more a passionate heart because of my great, great, great grandfather discovered the North Magnetic Pole and the Ross Sea in Antarctica. And so he oh. had botanists on board like um, Joseph Hooker and they collected a lot of data and things like that. So, you know, it's absolutely fascinating and finding stuff in the unknown and creating solutions to things. So what's the hardest part of your job? Oh, <laughs> there's numerous, to be honest. Um, right. Part of it is how, as a small organisation, how do we prioritise and what do we prioritise? The bottom line is that we have to keep the islands pest-free. Um, yeah. If we can't keep the islands pest-free, we'd, we'd literally have to walk away from what we've done. We, we can't do that. So it's juggling how you, across seven islands, pest-free islands, how you help make that happen. So, you know, there's logistics, there's relationships, and it's all, um, all comes together. And it's, it's fascinating. But it's also an interesting way of having to make things keep moving forward. So how do you keep them pest-free then? So 
across the islands, we have a network of pest management hardware. Right. That, so we monitor, we have tracking tunnels with a tracking card inside, um, with a bit of peanut butter. If, if uh, we have a mammal arrive, it will be attracted to go into the tunnel, hopefully, and leave their footprints on the card. We also have um, some traps that are set in case we have an incursion. So we sometimes catch um, the animal straight away. And then we have also our conservation dogs, specially trained um, dogs that are trained wow. to sniff out an incursion. Wow. So that on a quarterly basis, they visit the islands and help us try and detect if we have an incursion. Seasonally, we are now in our incursion season where generally we find young male Norway rats being pushed out of their territories on the mainland and trying to find new territories coming across onto the islands. So how um, do they get there? Excuse my ignorance. Are they swimmers? There's a mixture. So um, we have a mixture of swimmers and also hitchhikers. So oh. on boats or in people's equipment. So we've also got a mouse incursion as well. Um, mice don't swim. So we know that's coming someone's equipment. Wow. We're constantly trying to keep one step ahead of, of the incursions. Um, when the water's still relatively warm at this end of the breeding season, that they're, they're on the move. I can remember when I, I visited Antarctica six years ago, and it was um, very strict, the, the cleaning of when we stopped um, and landed that we had to go through to ensure that kind of thing didn't happen. And it's, yeah. it's bacteria as well. Yeah, so we are, um, I'd actually, I, I need to double check this now, but I, from my understanding is that we're the most visited pest-free islands in New Zealand. Wow, awesome. Um, and I think we're one of the closest to the mainland as well. Again, the, the, the landscape's changing greatly, you know, with, with Predator Free 2050, more places are becoming managed. But as far as I'm aware, we are the most visited pest-free islands in New Zealand and potentially the closest to the mainland as well. So that's great in, in one aspect, that we have lots of people coming to experience the islands, the wildlife sanctuary, and some of the species. But it's also one of our greatest risks, is things getting back that shouldn't be here. So there's another, there's two other branches that I can think of. One is this, is the um, re-establishing the actual forestry and also the bird song. So they are interlinked. The amazing thing about New Zealand ecology, it does tick in a different way. And ideally, we wouldn't need to do anything to help that restoration. It would just come back by itself. Yep. But um, as you're probably aware, a lot of our birds have either lost the ability to fly or fly particularly well. Yeah. Obviously, Kim is one example, but things like uh, Tieke, the, the saddleback and Kokako, they wouldn't be able to fly across water, so they're not going to get back here by themselves. Oh. There's no populations nearby. So where we have to help, we will help. So the ideal situation is we help re-establish the habitat, diversity within the habitat for species to return by themselves. And one of our main goals that we set a few years ago uh, as a 10-year as a goal was in 2029, we want Koromeko, the bellbird, to return to the islands by themselves. The nearest population isn't that far away. There's never been a successful translocation of, of Kodomiko, but we want them to return. And, and the key factor in that is being able to have the diversity within supplying nectar within the habitat oh. for them. Yeah. So you must have specialists in habitat that work alongside you. Yes, or is we that do. All down to you? <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. So we've got some amazing um, knowledge and experience within the community that you know comes together and 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 looks at how we support that habitat restoration 
um, and try and, as much as possible, allow it to happen by itself, the key component. And that knowledge in the community is huge. So I'd, I'd never underrate that, that, that knowledge and ability. It is fantastic, isn't it? So it, nothing can be changed with, oh, although we might have our heart might be in it, it just goes to show how many people we need within a team to, to make something happen and have that understanding. Because I hadn't actually appreciated the depth of it so far as the flying birds for one, you know, and the different types of nectar that you would need to actually attract the birds in the first place. Uh, the ecology here, and, and uh, if you think of the intrinsic nature of everything that's happening, you know, as humans, we can't re replicate that. Up. We don't know how it all works. We can help put components of it back, whether it's the, you know, the, the kookapa being able to fly in to bring in some seeds naturally, um, be able to nest through to, you know, the, the, the stuff that we just don't see happen. The, it's amazing how much we take for granted. And also on the other side of the scale is how much we think we know that we can control ourselves. And the big lesson is, I think, as Einstein, I always seem to be quoting this, you know, look deep into nature and you'll find the answers. But we need to be patient to see it, which is evident by the people involved, the wisdom of people who have done that in the past that can actually bring it to the fore. Yes, definitely. Is there any involvement so far as the ocean life is concerned? Does that affect any part of the habitat? Without doubt, yes. I mean, um, as we know, everything is connected. I'm lucky enough to be on Motorua at the moment. If you'd been here a thousand years ago, you know, coming through the forest, you would have had, you know, carnivorous land snails going around your feet. You'd have had tuatara, and those tuatara being the apex predator within the ecosystem. And for that ecosystem to work, you need energy and, and nutrients coming in. What I find generally is people aren't aware of is the, the, that that connection to the sea. New Zealand being in this amazing location within the Pacific Ocean with cold Antarctic waters coming up, warmer waters coming down, highly productive seas. I think we have the most highest diversity of seabirds anywhere on the planet. Oh, wow. And how the land ecology is driven by that seabird ecology, bringing in, so burrow nesting seabirds, flying in, coming through the canopy, and going to their burrows and, and having their nesting and, and producing, bringing the nutrients into the ecosystem mm -hmm. and that energy flowing through the ecosystem, of which obviously highly susceptible to mammals being on the ground. Yeah. And millions of seabirds being removed from the mainland and from islands. So then we're missing this integral component of our ecosystem, mm. driving nutrients. And that's a big part of my reason for doing the podcast is actually to see the interconnection of the land and sea. My guest next week is actually Glenn Edney and we took because it's Ocean Week and this coming week we've got um, the Environment Day around the corner anyway as well. But as you say, it is an education thing to get people to understand how the entire system works together and with my passion for the Antarctica as well, people think, well, it's at the bottom of the earth, who cares? But as you say, you know, those waters feed this and whatever shit we put in this end ends up down that end, you know, and it's meant to be the cleanest part of the planet. It is. I mean, it's fascinating how everything's connected and then there's lots of connections we just don't know, either know about or understand so far. So it is quite interesting how the islands have been isolated again from the mainland in the last sort of 10,000 years at the end of the last glacial period. Right. So then you have another set of localized 
evolution happening on islands separately from the mainland and that's around New Zealand again something that's happened here. It leads me to the question as to why people should care about a group of islands where nobody actually lives. So uh, there are there are some um, properties on the, the island so there are oh. people who live here though not not many. I, I'm on Motorua at the moment in one of the houses but I suppose the key thing I mentioned earlier, obviously, the diversity and how New Zealand has such a high endemic rate that without places like here, and, and we're not the only ones, obviously, but there are other places that manage the pests that are a safe haven for our endemic species. And without them, these species would just disappear off the face of the right. earth. So what's the most rewarding part of your role? Yeah, there's several. And, and I do spend a lot of time, unfortunately, behind a, a desk doing computer work but when I do come out to the islands you know again this morning I was lucky to be here on Motorua and, and to wake up be woken up by Kakariki and Tieke singing outside the door that to me is is just priceless priceless I couldn't I couldn't tell you how that feels just to, to hear that noise and those songs happening we have our floating classrooms where we have um, local kura and schools come out and we have obviously volunteers come out and people come out and actually to see people buy in or understand about what the islands are and yep. see and hear the species. And you can see that it means something to them, um, which is, is huge. It, you can actually see it, a slight, kind of slight awakening. I don't know if that's the right word, but you can actually see it kind of clicking in their, in their mind that there's something important here. It's, it's, it's experiential, isn't it? You just can't beat it. And it really touches the heart. Yes. You know, it's interesting because um, my guest this week was Tanya McInnes. She's doing the project. Uh, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, but I think it's Arahatia Tai Ao, something like that. It's basically loving your backyard. And the survey that they've just done, there's a big quote at the bottom of the survey that said the one thing that somebody's looking forward to is taking their mokapuno to a thriving forest with birdsong so loud that they have to raise their voices. Yeah, That's fantastic. So, yeah, it fits in beautifully with what um, you were saying. I, I, I often find now that the, the birds and their call is the, the biggest advocate for us. We have people who may have not come to the islands for years and they walk ashore and, and you can see it. In, you, again, you can see it. You, they hear the, the tieke calling and a light goes on it's kind of wow this is the change and this is mm. and we're only we're only at the beginning of this journey really we we've reintroduced seven species a mixture of birds reptiles and invertebrates but we've got years to go on this on this pathway of you know helping to restore the islands so what's the big aspiration i suppose it is that it is that cacophony of sound and for it to be i suppose self-sustaining that we don't actually need to have to be there that's the long-term vision. Obviously, how do we protect? You know, I, we hope in the in the longer term that the, you know the pest management side of things will get more effective and smarter, and how we do that, and that the islands will actually just be part of a bigger picture. It's not just the islands. In the bay here, we have a number of large landscape projects that are taking on the predatory 2050 momentum. So, pest management, um, habitat restoration. I suppose the, the goal is that there's a kind of a rolling front of habitat and ecological restoration that, that, that's enabled through all this work and, and co coming collectively together. So what are your own personal aspirations? 
Ooh. Really good question. Um, I think it probably comes back to something about, you know, the burrow nesting seabirds. We did a, a survey with a conservation dog, must be coming up four years ago now, to see if we've had any burrow nesting seabirds recolonizing the islands, now they're pest free. Mm -hmm. And we did find a number of burrow nesting seabirds, small numbers, but they are recolonizing. It's very slow. So there's, a, there's projects that we have in the pipeline to help encourage. We, we have quite a few of these species around in the bay, but they tend to go back to where they were raised. Right. So we want to try and encourage the burrow nesting seabirds to come back as they're so integral to that larger picture, ecological restoration. And again, I suppose we're wanting to hold off doing any kind of more intense translocation of burrow nesting seabirds. They're a complex and unfortunately very expensive projects, um, having to actually bring in seabird chicks hand yeah. rear them on the island so that they, when they fledge they, they come hopefully back our, our preference is to try and make it as natural as possible for for natural recolonization mm. so there's a whole lot of work there to be done because you can't hurry nature can you Generally <laughs> not. Generally not. i'm not sure if i answered your question but no that's cool so what can people do to help the organization uh, again, that's a really good question. So as an NGO, our volunteers are kind of our powerhouse. We have volunteer programs, whether it's we have weeders that come out weekly, we have planting programs, we have species monitoring programs. So we need to help and support and input from volunteers. We're always looking for people um, who would like to be involved in the project. Do they have to live within the vicinity? It's not a not a prerequisite. They don't have to, depending on their level of involvement. We we don't have any kind of minimum expectations. Whether it's you know get involved once a year or once a week, We're open to, the door is open. Yeah, we welcome you know anyone who wants to be involved. And it's not always you know there's the, the hands-on stuff on the islands, but we're also needing support, particularly around aspects of kind of marketing comms and and those sort of things that people can support us with. Yeah. Um, with experience um yeah being a very you know we're a small organization we try and get as much done as possible um but we're always looking for for support in a number of ways as a charity um we have to generate income so we can get the work done the mahi done so you know again our volunteers or whoever um, also donate to us and what about um the children do you have any involvement with the enviro schools movement We've had a small amount of involvement. We've had our own, I suppose, our own program that initiated a number of years ago. And we're just doing a review of our education program mm -hmm. and how we actually might integrate that a little bit more. Because the children are great ones. They inspire their parents, don't they? Yeah, yeah they're definitely great advocates. So. <laughs> Talking of inspiration, um, is there a person and or a book that has inspired you? I, I, I remember... Uh, it's a few years ago now, as, as a child being read Ring of Bright Water by um, Gavin Maxwell. I must admit, I haven't read it recently. But there is a movie of it as well, which I should probably have a look at. I remember back back then uh, being a huge inspiration for me to want to be involved with wildlife. And I just remember being, again, being set up in Scotland and this wanting to be in the wilderness, in the wild, you know, out and about. And yeah, that was one of my inspirations. I've not come across it at all, so that's inspired me as well. I must now either read it or watch it and see if um, if it still holds that, that. But I do remember being a child and real influence on me. 
it's a, a fascinating as to what leads us to where we are. Is there a quote or something that actually keeps you going or that you have at the back of your mind? I'm always inspired by David Attenborough. Um, he 96 a couple of weeks ago. Amazing. amazing. My um, aspiration again, is to have him as a guest. That would be amazing. He, he was one of those people I would, would absolutely love to meet. Um, at 96, I mean, amazing man. And yeah. as growing up, being inspired and watching him being on, on, on these amazing locations. Is there a quote of David's that keeps you going? One of his quotes is, um, there are some four million different kinds of animals and plants in the world, four million different solutions to the problem of staying alive. And I suppose that for me just in some ways kind of gives a bit of inspiration around A, the diversity of our planet, but also some hopefully some hope that, you know, however we approach things, that there is, we, I think we always have that perspective that, you know, there's the human angle on things, but there are obviously yeah, other ways. Yeah, and there's you know someone like David Attenborough who's been doing it for decades, and um, I think I um, cited it with Tanya as well last week. It's and Jane Goodall, you know, they're all up there in age, and the things, the changes that they must have seen over the decades, and yet they kept going and are still going and still enthusiastic and hopeful. So you know, for me, that keeps me going. Yes, definitely. So, what do you do when you're feeling in a funk to lift yourself out of it? I suppose, it, it, without wanting to bring it back to the islands every time, but it, it is that being able to be out here. For me, it is that, you know, just being able to hear either it's one of the birds or see a species that, that I know I've been part of of bringing back here. It really does just gets me out of that kind of, yeah. Yeah, it just means you're doing what, you, what you're meant to be doing. I think so, possibly, hopefully. So if I was your fairy godmother and gave you carte blanche to make any changes, do you, is there anything you'd like to do? And if so, why? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's so many out there, so many we could do. Um, and without wanting to sound too grandiose, I mean, I suppose one thing that plays on my mind is around, I mean, obviously climate change is a big thing, but and particularly for us working in this sort of area with climate change, the huge impact it will have on our species here you know either spatially or over time that just won't have the ability to adapt or move and that impact is going to be so great um, and we're already trying to build in um, aspects of climate change resilience into the project around drought resilience for the islands the islands are always predisposed to kind of climates um, especially drought so we have a, a restoring habitat that needs to that extra support to try and sustain climate change and, and drought resilience. I'm not sure if that's too big a, too big a wish. No, but. absolutely. Well, we all need big dreams, you know, and if we didn't, then it would be, uh, to me, it would be very, very shallow place. Um, and I mean, the podcast is about infinite possibility. So why not? So what do you think people on the ground can do to make a difference to climate change? Do you think there's anything that we can do as individuals? I mean, it's a massive subject. I know that's probably landing it on you. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously huge. I mean, there's everything we can, every aspect of our lives. And again, how do you stay optimistic when it is lumbered on you? I suppose we have choices that we can make and hopefully also influences that we can make on politicians and companies to do the right thing. I have obviously haven't got one straight 
quick answer to it all. It, it's a multi-pronged um, approach, but you know, there's the, the things that we can be doing in our own backyard or through to yeah, the decisions we make on things we purchase. And I think by the very nature of what you're doing and the lessons you've learned in the process about you can't hurry some things and a very long-term vision is required of something to be able to put things in place. And I think just for myself, you know, it tends to be very narrow, everything that we're, we're given. And so part of it is to expand people's thinking, to think more long-term and also to narrow it right down and, and give people the hope that the little things that they are doing are making an impact. Yeah, definitely. And I think you mentioned it earlier around, you know, future generations and how we don't lumber them with those issues that we are creating now. And I, I suppose that's, again, possibly the inspiration that needs to happen is around the future generations and how we make that work. Yeah. And Tanya did say she had, she went into Bream Bay College and was inspired by the youngsters there so um there's a lot of hope yes fantastic well you've inspired me richard thank you so much for your time and i look forward to meeting you one day that'd be great one thank you again for inviting me along you're welcome take care who'd have thought there was so much to consider a real insight into the wonders of nature and lessons like slowing down to take on board as well as remembering we're an intrinsic part of the flow of life when our external environment thrives, so do we. Remember, there's a multitude of ways you can get involved, either volunteering your time to help weeding, planting or monitoring, and or gift a monetary donation, become a member or adopt a tree. Next week, I'm talking to Glenn Edney, who provides a fascinating insight into the spirit of our oceans. So make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform, be it Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Samsung Podcasts, or my YouTube channel, so you don't miss out. And don't forget to get in touch if you have a subject or guest you'd like me to consider. My email is info at So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential.